quarter to three board games podcast for the end of October and or the beginning of November. My name is Tom Chick, and I'm not playing Arkham Horror 3rd Edition. Mm, and this is Asan Lopez, and I'm not playing Seven Wonders. Mm. And this is Mike Pullman, and I am not playing the Portal board game. I, I'm not sure I knew there was a such thing. Yeah, it's called the Uncooperative Cake Acquisition Game. Oh. <laughs> That's just so adorably twee. <laughs> uh, well, in that case, uh, what are you playing, Mike Pullman? Uh, I have been playing the game Space Base, which I know is not new, just new to me. Um, and I've been told it's kind of a reboot of Machi Koro, another game I have not played. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a tableau slash engine builder kind of game. Um, you have this, uh, each player has a board in front of them uh, with uh, numbers 1 through 12 and slots for cards. And they're all populated with little spaceships when you start. And then there's tracks of how much money you have how much income you have, and how many victory points you have. And then each turn, it's very simple. You roll dice, and you choose to either activate... You roll 2d6. Uh, so uh, you choose to either uh, activate the card on the total of those dice or the two individual cards, or two individual spots representing those dice. So if I rolled a 3 and a 4, I could activate the 3, the three card, the 4 card, or the 7 card. Uh, and then, depending on whose turn it is, uh, you either use the main portion of the card or this... Uh, uh, other part, I don't know what they call it, uh, when you replace the card, you essentially flip it upside down and it has a different effect. Uh, but the active player uses the main part of the card and then all the other players use the uh, the passive part. And it might do something like give you more money or give you some victory points uh, or some of the more fancier cards have some effects where uh, you essentially charge them up and it might let you swap cards. Or um, uh, it's largely not much player interaction, but there's a little bit. Uh, there was some uh, stealing from another player, uh, I think, in one or two instances. But, uh, Mike, but yeah. Mike, I can get stuff even when it's your turn, is that right? So you, you roll the dice, and if those numbers match up with something I've developed, I get something? Yep. As long as... Uh, so the very, the first couple turns, that doesn't happen much, because uh, right. as a passive player, it's only after you've replaced the card and it flips around. Right. So in these, in these 12 slots that are pre-populated... I might buy a new card for the number six slot, and I'd flip the old one around. It'll have a lesser effect than the primary. So uh, now I'm not going to roll sixes anymore because it'll help correct. you. So I don't want a six, right? And it is since it's using two d six, it is actually a you know a normal distribution curve. So the most valuable cards are going to be at your uh, your seven spot because they're going to be hit theoretically the most often. I mean, do you guys consider that player interaction? I mean, it's it's fun. It's nice. You, you can look at Tom and be like, thanks, Tom, for rolling that number. You know, <laughs> That's right. actually a great question, Hassan, because I, it, it's not so much interaction as giving everyone something to do when it's not their turn. But that, right. I'd never thought of it that way. That is a good point. Well, it's, I mean, it eliminates downtime, too. Yeah. It's, it's a psychological thing because you, you, you're getting something and you, your brain, I think, looks for a cause of that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, you did that for me, Tom. Right. right. So thank you. I, I think we can't help but interpret it as a form of player interaction. The yeah. thing, and that, that's the great contribution of Mochi Koro too, which I think is completely obsoleted by Space Base, which I also think is a little obsoleted by something else that I'll mention in a minute. But that's the great contribution of that game is it may not be player interaction, which is a great point, but what it is is it, it's a reason to pay attention or to care when it's not your turn because that's mm-hmm. my big problem uh, with a lot of euros and and with certain game designs, is I feel like I 
I, I feel like it sucks when it's not somebody's turn and they just completely disengage from the game and they're checking their cell phone. And you can't do that in Space Base because you care what everybody rolls. And I love that about it. Yeah. Uh, and then another cool thing is some of the cards let you swap positions. So, you know, a card that's normally going to be slotted in nine might be able to slap with uh, six, making it a little more uh, likely to hit, which is kind of a cool interaction. And then there's also these abilities that are arrows that you let, essentially let you shift your activation over a spot. So if you can get one of those next to, for example, the, the cards that go in 12 are the ones that are 12 and 2, are the ones that are very powerful. So if you get an arrow in 11, that means 11 or 12 can activate that uh, number 12 card. Uh, in fact, I had a card on 12 that if you charged up enough, it just said you win. But it's actually uh, it's actually very hard to pull off because it's you have to be hitting twelve on your dice a lot. Uh, Mike, is there much theming in that? I'm asking leading questions because I've played a lot of space space. Uh, yeah. our, our group likes it a lot. So, is there much theming, or is it just a bunch of dry die rolls? Um, it's all a bunch of goofy spaceships that are activating. Um, you know, each card has an individual drawing, which is kind of cool. Um, you know, the victory points have little rocket ships. Um, and then there's, you know, each, every turn after you roll, you have the ability to buy a card, uh, or, and those end up swapping in. That's what we've mentioned before about, uh, uh, changing an active card into a passive card. And then at certain points of the game, uh, there's these, I think there's a dozen of them, these colonies, which permanently occupy one of your slots. Uh, you don't get a, a primary activation on them anymore, but they give you a whole bunch of victory points. It's basically a way to race to the end of the end Correct. game. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So the theme uh, that, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. I was going to say, so uh, it's an interesting decision of when you're going to start switching over to buying these because you're then losing your potential to earn more money uh, to kind of build your engine. Mm. The the theming that I uh, think doesn't necessarily emerge at first, but when you do the thing that I do with games, which I love doing, which is like breaking down all the, the cards and arranging them in stacks and looking at the different numbers, uh, Space Base has a really cool system where most of the ships, and all the ships, by the way, are named after science fiction uh, authors, uh, I think there's like a, even a David Bowie ship, but uh, they've all got cool names. But the type of ship is determined by the role that it functions. Most of the ships are just cargo ships. But mm -hmm. some of the ships, and these are the ones that I think deflect the die rolls, the arrows you mentioned, those are military ships. Amongst mm -hmm. the military ships, the carriers have a specific function. Uh, the things that you mentioned that let you move a card from one number to another number presumably to get the more powerful cards into the more likely die rolls, uh, those tend to be called things like warp gates. Um, hmm. But uh, I, there's a definite kind of theming ecosystem in Space Base that uh, you might not realize the first few playthroughs, but once you break down the cards and look at, oh, this function is always associated with this kind of ship, uh, that I think is really clever and it's lurking in there. Yeah. I actually had not noticed that yet. I'm going to pay attention the next time we play. That's All cool. the cards that give you uh, your income uh, are like uh, mining ships, by the way, which is another mm. thing. So you've got like a, a mining-based income. So one thing I noticed, at least, I don't know, maybe this is just a bad shuffle on our part, but there were very, very few cards that gave us more income. There's You get a handful yeah. of them when you start, but yep. as far as the ones you can draft, there was, they were rare. Uh, and I don't know if the expansions change that at all, if that's by design, but... Uh, it kind of, in retrospect, made me realize I should not replace those income spots uh, until a little ways into the game so I can keep earning some potential. Um, Tell me, what's the drawback? And again, I'm asking you a leading question here. So <laughs> yeah. What's the drawback to uh, 
just buying a, a really cheap ship every turn. So the the cool one of the interesting mechanics is every time you buy a ship, you spend all of your money. Even Wait a minute, what if I've saved up ten gold and the ship <laughs> I want only costs one? Even so, and like you, you could be saved up to thirty gold, and if your ship costs one, you still spend it all, and then you raise it back up to your income level. So uh, the income is very important as it gives you your starting point to build up your money again. Yeah. And I love that push your luck element of do i go ahead and buy a cheap card or do i save up for a better one and hope that no one else at the table buys the specific one that i want yep uh -huh. and it was just me and my wife playing that happened more than once she got really mad as you know I yeah <laughs> i was saving up for that ship it's especially great like with more players and you're you know it makes it past one player they didn't take that one ship you want then it makes it past another player and you're thinking oh as long as long as Hassan doesn't buy it I'm fine and then Hassan freaking bought it even though the other two people uh, and there there is a sense too of like you look at since most of them are cargo ships when something that's not a cargo ship or something that has these charge up powers appears everybody kind of sits up and looks to see is anybody else wanting to buy that uh, is it going to make it around to me but I love what's apparently a very simple dynamic, which is, hey, if you want to buy something, you don't get change. You give all your money uh, to the bank. I love how that really affects the gameplay and the stakes uh, mm -hmm. in terms of when and how you buy stuff. Mm -hmm. Would you guys say that um, does it matter what ships you buy, or can you kind of just choose ships mostly randomly and, and good stuff will happen? Or do you have to really kind of think carefully about what ships to buy and what what slots to upgrade? I think uh, there's a, a decent amount of thought, especially when you start uh, incorporating the arrows. Um, so if I can get the right ships, I can essentially have a range of numbers that gets me to my most desirable role mm. by having the arrows kind of keep shifting over. Mm. It's definitely so, an engine builder. Like it's definitely yeah. not something where you just throw stuff at it. Uh, the person who's going to tend to win, I mean, the dice can screw this up, but because they're two d six, the distribution is, you know, it's definitely on a, I guess, bell curve there. Yeah. Uh, but it's definitely an engine builder where the person who makes a good engine, you can see them starting to run away with the game and getting more money and getting better ships, getting more points actually, because it's not about necessarily getting more money, because nobody really is sitting there amassing a bunch of income, and if they mm -hmm. are you can always look at what colony they're probably trying to buy and exactly how many points that's going to give them. There's a fun little racing element there, like, you know, which one of us is going to get that 15-point that colony? Oh, you bought it, and now I can only afford the 10-point colony. Uh, right. So th there's definite engine building and definite uh, reasons to pay attention to very specifics about how much more money and income other players have and score. Mm -hmm. Because it's it's something, uh, Mike, where the game ends at a certain – once somebody hits, I think it's like 40 points, the game is over, but everybody else still gets a turn to try to get ahead of the points that that person made. So yep. if they've got money saved up, they just dump it into the best colony. Maybe they got more points than the guy who ended the game. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it seemed – you know, that was just my first game, but it seemed to end kind of suddenly where, you know – yeah. Also, my wife had enough money to buy one of those colonies and push her over the top. So, Yeah, that's definitely – those colonies up there aren't so much – in a lot of games, there's this sense of when do I transition from an economy to scoring. Uh, and I think here those colonies are less that and more about when do I rush to slam the game shut. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Like you so can Tom, see people getting within striking distance of that game end score. Have you played with the expansions, Tom? No, oh, let's see, no, there's the weird shy Pluto thing. Yep, and then there's yeah, another that, one called Command Station, which is actually like a carrying case and expansion. 
Right. I have not. Do you know either of them? I have not played them. So I've, they've both sold well uh, at the store, and I have people are enthusiastic about the game. That's why I wanted to try it. Um, but I think I'm going to try to grab the expansions and see how those uh, expand the game. Based on how much I like Space Base, uh, John Clare is the guy who made it, and he just released a game called Ecos that I'm really keen to buy, specifically because I really like what he did in uh, Space Base. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Space Base is... Uh, I, I do think it, it obsoletes Mochikoro. Mochikoro now, I think, is just a terrible game to play. It was just really cute, and, and I loved that dynamic when it first came out. But now that there's something that's been designed, I think, much more tightly, Mochikoro is so just splashy and loosey-goosey. Uh, you know, uh, Space Base has real meticulous engine building, whereas Mochikoro is just, hey, let's chuck dice around and see what happens. Um, mm-hmm. So I feel that Space Base definitely obsoletes Mochikoro, but there's a game that I talked about previously called uh, Valeria Card Kingdoms, which mm-hmm. I, I might say obsolete Space Base, except that Space Base is such a tightly designed and even themed engine builder, whereas Valeria Card Kingdoms is a bit more loose and uh, it's a bit more whimsical. Uh, but one of the important differences uh, is that in Space Base, you roll two dice and I choose, do I want... Uh, is it do I want both dice individually or do I want the total of them? I choose. Correct. Yep. Yeah. If you roll a five and a six, do I want to fire off my five and my six, or do I want to fire off my rare eleven? Uh, Valeria Card Kingdoms is a game that gives you all of that. You choose each individual die roll plus the sum of them. So it's like super generous uh, with that. It's, it's more casual as a result, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, I'm quite fond of Space Base. Hassan, you haven't played Space Base. No, you know, I, this this style of game I don't have a ton of experience with. I've played a little bit of Machi Koro, and I, I liked it fine. I actually think Machi Koro is a good kid's game. Um, ah, and yes. So, and so I wonder if Space Space is... Well, I, I just, you know, I would like to play Space Space with my daughter, for example, but I think I have to wait until she's just a, a tad older. Yeah. That, that's definitely a good point, is that's part of the, I guess, appeal of Mochi Koro, is it is more casual and friendly for kids, or party game atmospheres, yeah. Whereas Space Base is the much more, it's it's the thinking man's Mochi Koro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, here's another issue I have with it. Mike, why is it called Space Base? Uh, I have no idea. It's all ships and colonies. There's not a base in the whole game. Yeah, exactly. Why? <laughs> it's like they just they don't because you expect there, there's this really cool game that I've played lately called Among the Stars, where you're building a space oh, base. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I don't know why that game isn't called Space Base, and Space Base isn't called Among the Stars because in Space <laughs> Base, you know, you're sending your ships out. That's what happens when you replace it. Is it goes out and it's like a mobile ship out on a journey now. Uh, so. <laughs> It's not. It's not like a mobile space station, like a docking station where all, all you're you're adding all these ships to your space station. That's not the the idea. Or, I mean, what? Why then? If it because if that's the case, Hassan, and I do think that's probably what they're going for. But th- it's a bunch of ships in a parking lot. Then why, when the <laughs> die rolls, does it do anything? <laughs> uh, fair, fair point. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, so uh, Mike, I'll be curious what you think of of the expansions because doesn't doesn't one of them make it a kind of a legacy game? I think it does. I think yeah. Shy Pluto adds some of those components. So yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I was I I expected to like it, but I liked it even more than uh, anticipated. So I, I'm going to grab those and try them very soon. Awesome. Okay, Hassan, over to you. What are you playing? If you can't, if you can't be bothered to play Space Base, what do you got on the table instead? 
Um, I've been playing a game called Paper Tales, and especially the expansion called Beyond the Gate, so I'm going to kind of talk about them together. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be frank, like right up front, I'll say that I, I mostly bought the game as a solitaire experience, which you can only do if you buy both both of them. Right. So it's, it's kind of an investment, and you're kind of taking a dive into the system. But um, I'm going to argue that, I, that at least for me, it's working really well. Um, I would put this game in that category of pretty light, pretty quick to set up and play solitaire games. You know, like sometimes you want a big, meaty, crunchy solitaire experience like, I don't know, like Eldritch Horror or um, Spirit Island. But sometimes you just want something you can pull out really quick. You know, your brain's kind of fried and you want to play something in 20, 30 minutes. And I've tried a bunch of these over the past year, like Lost Expedition and One Deck Dungeon and Deep Space D6, which you guys talked about, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I've played Space Hulk, the Death Angel game for a while. You know, the one I haven't played, actually, now that I think of it, is the any of the Onarim games. Tom, do you oh. think that's a that's a misstep? Do you think Yeah, I should... yeah. Shoddy Torby definitely knows that feeling where, hey, you just want to play something for, you know, 20, 30 minutes. And, uh, yeah, it's super, like, like charming with the, the, the art, artist who he collaborates with. Yeah, definitely the Onarim games are perfect for that. Niche. I don't know which one to get, though. Like, which one should I get? Start with Onarim. Yeah, Onarim. Okay. Is, yeah. <laughs> fair, fair enough. All right. So there's, that's, a, there's a digital version of it, too, Hassan. That's pretty good. Yeah, maybe that might be the way to, to dip into it, see if I like it. Um, but, yeah, that's this that's this category. It's like, you know, the quick, the quick solitary game you could play on a lunch break or, you know, within half an hour. Mm-hmm. And... The the other reason why I'm drawn to Paper Tales is that it's it's a card drafting game and I and I, I think I've mentioned before I really like drafting as a mechanism I think it's really satisfying and this is a game where there's a loose medieval fantasy theme on it you have a bunch of cards in your hand they're all they all represent units uh, that you can deploy into your kingdom so some of them might be dragons or manticores or knights right um, and your kingdom is very constrained. There's really only four spaces in your kingdom. This is a very, very small artificial kingdom. Not so much of have, a tableau there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have you have two spaces up front and two spaces in the back. And really the only conceptual difference between the front of your kingdom and the back is that typically only the front units contribute to your warfare strength. So they're going to they're going to be playing a role in whatever wars you're you're, you're engaged in. Um, in a multiplayer game, what you would be doing is engaging in warfare to each of your neighbors. So this is where it has kind of like that seven wonders feel where um, you can, with the expansion in this game, play up to seven people, right? So you can have a big people of people playing this drafting game, but you are directly interacting only with your, your two neighbors mm-hmm. um, next to you. Um, the units are going to have different effects. I mean, the, the ultimate goal of the game is to earn the most legend points, which is just victory points. But units are going to provide some economic benefits like money, which you need to actually recruit, deploy cards into your kingdom. Um, some units will give you resources. There's only three resources in the game. There's food, wood, and crystals. And those are mostly used for constructing buildings. So in addition to units, you also want to build buildings into your kingdom. They they help your engine get going, and they often um, will kick in a, a fair number of these legend points. And so you're gonna you're gonna want to build at least a few of these of these buildings um, over the course of a game. Um, 
there's the probably the, the final element to it that's a little bit unique compared to other drafting games like this is that there's an aging mechanism where the, the units that you deploy into your kingdom don't live forever, they age. And so they're actually only going to live two rounds maximum. But there's lots of interesting, clever ways that you can manipulate age tokens. Some cards actually get more powerful the more age tokens you, you have on them. Some cards let you shift the age tokens around in interesting ways. Um, so that that's kind of a fun thing to explore where when I was when I was first getting into Paper Tales, it was a little confusing to me and I didn't totally grasp it. But now that I've played it a bunch, I, I really quite like it. Um, yeah, it's a it's a quick little engine builder. It's over in four rounds, and that's faster than people usually expect. Like this is one of those games where people are like, "Wait, we're done already? My right. engine was just getting going," and that can that could probably you know bother some people. But it, it's a game that's gonna that's gonna make you want to play more rather than overstay its welcome, which yeah. I think is a good thing. Yeah, and and that that also plays into that that whole idea of things being mortal and dying and you only have them for so long that takes the sting out of it in that you're only ever playing four turns so basically each card you play will only be around for half of the game and half of the game is a pretty substantial part of the game uh, right so so it's not so much that it's killing your your stuff as those little time tokens those aging tokens it's kind of another system that you you can manage because normally you know each card's only there for half of the games but if you mess with those tokens you can change that in some interesting ways that's yeah. right and it's it's it can be tough to do that because the game is so short and constrained but like yeah. you might pay a lot of money to get out a super powerful unit like you place out a dragon for example and that's going to potentially help you win wars for the whole rest of the game and then you play out another unit that lets you shift the age token off of the dragon so that it can live longer you might even get your dragon to live the whole game um and that's really clever when you can pull that off. It's, it can be tough to get those combos going, but when you do when you do riff off one of those, it's pretty satisfying. And that's what drafting plays into as well. I think drafting is key to to giving you interesting choices for what synergies you set up and giving you more cards to choose among. Uh, I, I love that about uh, drafting games. Is yeah. Rather than having a hand of five cards, I have a hand potentially of five times however many players there are as the, as the cards go around. Yeah. That's right, and 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 it is a drafting game where it 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 does help at least a little bit to pay attention to what other people are doing in their kingdom, and you don't necessarily want to pass a certain card to your neighbor. Uh, I don't want to let Mike's dragon live the whole game. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the game's not very complicated, so uh, you know whenever people say, "Oh, this is a game where you have to pay attention to what Tom's doing," and I'm like, I look over at Tom's tableau and I have no fucking clue what he's doing. <laughs> I can't read all those cards upside down, and he's got a million different effects. Right? This is not that game. Like, it's pretty easy to look over at Mike's tableau and be like, "Oh yeah, I see what strength he has. I see what he's got going on. Okay, I don't want to pass him this." I, I think I like how tight and 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 yeah. simple the game is. It's a yeah. very constrained design. Yeah, very very simple systems. Very yeah, I, that's uh, and super. As you mentioned, it's a super easy one to teach too. Yeah. Like that that one gets gets from table to, uh, space to actually playing very quickly. 
But um, but I I want to laud the solitaire variant that's included in the expansion because that's what I've been pretty obsessed with for the past couple weeks. Is How can just, you possibly play a drafting game solitaire? That can't work. <laughs> I know, and that was actually my thought too. Is like I just want to buy this to see how it works. But man, you know the designer was super clever about this. So you you fight against an uh, you know an AI opponent, this Lich King who is amassing this this army of undead and he's going to be generating these these points across the course of the game and there's some clever ways that he can generate those points like he'll fight you in those wars um, and he's pretty tough in his battles but he's also got some interesting quests that he has out and what what's going to work is that you're still going to draft cards you like for example will draw five cards off the top of the deck you're going to pick one of those to keep and then the other four go basically into the lich king's pile so he has like a stack that he's building right and then you collect a bunch of this car these cards like this and then when you're done drafting your hand you then have to flip over the lich king's stack and go through them and some of them are going to give them points based on the quest that he has active so for example the lich king might have a quest that says he gets two points for every card in that stack that generates crystals as a resource right and what that means is that and, and you know what those quests are so what that means is that you actually have to pay attention when you're drafting to not only what cards you want to be putting into your kingdom but also potentially denying the lich king cards that are going to give him points. In other words, it's you're playing against an opponent. You you kind of have to hate draft sometimes. And I just think it's super clever that they were able to to build that into the design. They also build the sense of the cards coming back around the table with the solitaire game in that it seems a little esoteric when I was first reading over it and going, what? But what you do is you pick up five cards, you choose one, and then you give four to the Lich King. Then you pick up four cards, choose one, give the other three to the Lich King. Then you pick up uh, two cards, no, yeah, three five, cards. four, and then three. Yeah. Then what happens is after you've got three cards, the Lich King has uh, seven, wait, four, three, nine. <laughs> you then shuffle all of his cards. You choose two of those, and you pick one of them, and then you take the top one off of the, st the, the stack of the Lich King cards. So the cards that you put there, some of them will come back to you. So when oh, you've got that... Yeah, and you're hoping some come back to you. Exactly. Like, oh, please, I hope the farmer comes back to me. Yeah. Exactly. Or even like, oh, dang, he's going to get two points for every crystal. I've got two of them in my hand. All right, I'll keep one and hope that maybe I can blindly draw the other one before he scores it, which which replicates that sense of passing a card around the table, secretly hoping that it comes back around to you, which is the fundamental part of, of, of drafting, I think. That's yeah. right. That's right. No, I, I think it's – um. Yeah, again, like you wouldn't think that it would work as well as it does as a solitaire draft, but it but it totally does. They they were able to mimic some of those emotional experiences you have in a multiplayer drafting game. Yeah, and and it, yeah, and it goes just super quick too, because it's a, a short, brief game with multiple players. It's just all the more brief when you're playing at solitaire, especially once you get into the groove. Uh, yeah, and get it going. Yeah, uh, there's. There's easy ways to tweak the the difficulty. Like at this point, I I feel pretty good about my skills in this game. So I've got I'm playing with basically two, two to three cards that boost oh. the Lich King's abilities. Well, and, aren't you a big shot? Because I haven't yeah. even touched those. <laughs> yeah, I I'm, I want to work my way up to because you can use all four, and if if he has all four of these cards that basically boost him, I don't know. I think I I think you'd have to get pretty lucky to beat him. Um, 
but I can I can almost consistently beat him now with two with with two bonuses. Um, so it's it, that's pretty cool too because he he puts up a, a tough fight and I and I like that and I also like that some of those cards boost his warfare ability. So that'll that'll kind of force you to either you know invest more in in combat or just be like screw it i i'm gonna let you win all the battles and i'm gonna try to get my points in another way um whereas some of the other lich king cards boost his just his quest abilities right and so then you really have to pay attention to hate drafting there's also though hassan uh in addition to the points he would get from the quest of the war uh there's a number of it's just a point dump on each card that it pushes his score up yeah. Uh, so it does that thing which I – like a, a lot of AIs in games are just ways to kick the score counter ahead of you, which right. always feels like unfair. And when I first started playing Paper Tales with the AI deck, it felt to me kind of arbitrary that, oh, wait a minute. He's getting 11 points this turn <laughs> from the card, whereas he only got four last time. So I went through each of the stages of cards, and the variability – for how many points he's going to get just from that number in the corner, irrespective yep. of quests, irrespective of his uh, war score, ranges from something like 14 points overall, which is super easy to beat, to like like 60, I think, which is crazy hard to beat. But it balances out in that the cards that give him more points fight less strenuously, like they have a lower war score. That's right. Uh, That's right. Which, yeah. which I think is a really cool balancing thing. Like... Like, if he's going to put up a hard fight, he's not going to get a ton of points just for free. If he's going to get a ton of points just for free, you now have the opportunity to race ahead and, and kick his ass at the war score. Um, That's right. Yeah. And you and you can kind of read that. Like, you, when it comes to warfare, you, you have um, half the information you need to know whether he's right. going to be fighting a tough battle or not. Yeah. Because um, then you're blindly – go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and also it does a cool thing, too, where losing a battle isn't – winning a battle is far more helpful than losing a battle is hurtful. I don't know right. if that – basically, if you win a battle, you get three points. If he wins a battle, he only gets one point. <laughs> so you can kind of let that war go just at a cost of two points each turn, but – if you chase it, the potential bonus that you're going to get is six points from winning both of the wars because it replicates like one war on the left is a black number, one war on the right is the purple number. Um, so, uh, yeah, I like this idea of uh, the war being – like it's just an option. Like do I, do I go for a combat tableau with my four cards or do I go for an economic tableau? Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, it's um, it's surprisingly satisfying the the little mini tableau that you build in this game, and I think that any card drafting game is going to live or die based on the variety of the cards in the set and how many kind of different strategic directions you can take them. And even though Paper Tales is is a constrained design, it does give you some interesting directions to go. Like you can pursue a combat strategy, or you can get some cards that really let you play with the aging mechanic. Um, you can really build and construct a lot of those buildings and they can really generate a lot of points for you. So you, you can, you can play around with the design every time you try it out. And with solitaire, that's especially satisfying. Yeah. Uh, one of my reservations, and I don't know 
if it's tuned for this. Uh, another of my favorite drafting games, where the drafting for some inexplicable reason is called a variant, uh, is Terraforming Mars. And Terraforming Mars is super neatly tuned where pretty much every time you play, you go through the entire deck so that every single card at a certain point is going to pass through somebody's fingers. So once you learn that deck, you get a sense for oh, has that algae farm come out yet? Or, oh, am I going to be able to, to uh, research the, the moss to synergize with my fungus card? Or, oh, is the, you know, what different, is the solar power out yet? So you, as you learn the Terraforming Mars deck, the game's kind of tuned where every card will come out at some point and either be kept from you or it'll pass through your hands. Um, in Paper Tales, I it's a big deck like you never go I, at least in my experience you never go through like more than half of the deck like That's so right. there are a lot of cards that would That's be right. part of cool synergies that if the shuffle turns out a certain way you're just never gonna see that's um, right yeah i mean i think that's a nice thing that the expansion gives you is that it it bumps the deck size up a fair bit and a lot of the cards in the expansion are, are pretty fun to play with. Yeah, um, yeah. They're slightly more complicated, as, as you might expect, but they're interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, all right, Paper Tales. Why is it called Paper Tales? I have no fucking clue. <laughs> I think the idea that they were going with is that uh, everything's ephemeral. Like, all of your guys will die, and uh, there is insubstantial as paper i i don't i mean it sounds like it'd be something you call an origami game um, yeah but i yeah. mean the, it's it, and i don't know much about this but it's it's paper tales was based on an original design called vorpals which yeah. um yeah it's and this is a this is a japanese designer and i think vorpals oh. was originally published just in japan and then when they re-implemented it as paper tales it hit a much bigger audience and i think they did um some some fairly you know strong development work to make it into paper tales and it's yeah. been quite successful but I, yeah i wonder if there is something in a translation or some something that i'm not getting about the whole paper tales thing that that i would have if if i had played vorpals or something like that right. yeah that makes way more sense okay yeah uh all right so uh space base uh paper tales uh, Hassan, you talk about games that only take like 20 minutes. Uh, <laughs> let me th let me throw another one under the pile for you to consider. Uh, actually, not this one. This one is kind of weird. I, I really like this game, but it's really limited. Um, there's a game that I had actually heard about by just accidentally Googling it when I was looking for information about Arkham Horror. In uh, Arkham Horror, the third edition, just got an expansion from Fantasy Flight called Dead of Night, um, which I... I've, I've, I bought it, but I haven't been able to play it yet, and I kind of don't have much enthusiasm for it. It adds some new characters, but you know, there's plenty of characters in there already. It adds some new types of cards, and and it also adds two new scenarios. One of which is about uh, in Arkham the two gangs fighting each other, the Sheldons and O'Doyles, or whatever. I don't even know why in Arkham Horror would you play a scenario about like gangs fighting each other it's beyond me and i don't know if at some point 
you know, Cthulhu interrupts them or whatever. But that that is so unappealing to me to play an <laughs> Arkham horror game about two criminal elements butting heads. It, uh, it, it's, it sounds like they're really reaching now, right? Like they've just they've squeezed this eldritch thing so dry, right? Now, right? I don't know. But the thing is, for Arkham Horror only had like, I think three scenarios in it, and their, their <laughs> card game, Arkham Horror as well. That thing's got like what is like five seasons, each with six chapters in it. I mean, why didn't they just crib from some of that? They're giving us a gang warfare scenario <laughs> and there's only there's only like five scenarios with the expansion. Only eight twenty percent of them are non horror, it seems like. Like why would I play this one and I don't know, I haven't played it so maybe it gets cool, but at any rate, one of the reasons I also haven't played it is because I stumbled across this game, which is a solitaire card game very, very simple. The complete opposite of breaking out Arkham Horror and setting up the table and building the map. Uh, and it's called Arkham Noir. Uh, and it wasn't available in the U.S. for a while. Uh, I think you could get it from U.K. stores. There was an English translation over there. It was originally a French game made by a fellow named Yves Torigny. Yeah. Um, and the immediate appeal of it is this really cool black and white art. Which another is another way is the complete opposite of the Fantasy Flight Arkham Horror with their comic booky color illustrations. This is like really stark black and white stuff, um, which uh, it it just it looks unique. Um, so that drew my eye, uh, and then also it's basically a, a small puzzle in a deck of cards, and I think it's kind of a game that can be quote unquote solved. In that I feel like at any given time, once you learn the cards, once you learn what's in there, it's pretty straightforward what you're going to do at any moment. So when I have a choice to make, like I feel like I could write a program that would pick what to do. But the appeal of this game is it took me a while to get to that point. And learning that solution, learning, okay, well, here's what I should always do, I really enjoyed that in the same way that I enjoyed taking apart all of the cards in Space Base and looking at the theming of the ships. This Arkham Noir game, I played it a few times and was like, oh, this seems kind of random and desultory, like what I should do. But then I broke down the cards and looked at the distribution. And then furthermore, looked at why certain cards that were important were named certain things. And what seemed like a kind of a random set-matching solitaire game turned out to be this really cool theming based on one story by H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, so Arkham Noir, the first one, is called Case Number One, and there's a Case Number Two, which isn't available in the U.S. yet. But Case Number One is called The Witch Cult Murders, and it's based on the short story Dreams in the Witch House. Um, and what you do is you flip out the cards in a line, and one at a time... You deal with a card at the end of the line. Once you've dealt with that card, they all shift down. So you've got the one card you can deal with, and you see what the other four are that are on the way. And what you're trying to do is set up situations where you kind of trap one of those cards. Like there's a, there's, there are specific suits, and in each suit there's one, if you're lucky, maybe two cards that you need to trap to win the game. And out of six suits in the game, you have to trap one card from each of five suits. So pretty straightforward, and the suits are things like people, places. Um, one of the suits is, as you might expect in Lovecraft, monsters. And in this deck of, I think it is like 52 cards, 
the suits aren't evenly distributed. There are only like five monsters in there. And the only monster that you can trap is a weird little card called Brown Jenkin. And if you've read Lovecraft, if you know Dreams of the Witch House, you know that Brown Jenkin is a weird, funky, scary little guy. He's a rat with a human head. So Brown Jenkin is this creepy little card. There aren't many monsters, and of the monsters, Brown Jenkin is the one you need to trap if you want to win the game. Otherwise, you have to get eat one from each of the other suits. So this one little rare monster card that comes up, and you see him marching down the track. You know when he's coming. You've got to set it up to get that little guy. Um, it feels super thematic. Like, here's this weird creature that I love from this short story, and he's a fundamental part of this game in a way that I might not have realized if I think of it as a, oh, I have to trap one monster suit, one person suit, one evidence suit. Um, so once you break this game down into this puzzle and you analyze how the cards are distributed, uh, I think that's part of the fun is solving this almost one-time puzzle that the game offers, kind of like these escape room games uh, that mm-hmm. I've seen. Uh, mm-hmm. Have you guys played any of those? Yeah, I've played some of them. I played the unlocks, a couple of those, and the exit. And don't um, you and like I... play through it and kind of solve it, and then you're done with it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, well, <clears throat> this I feel is kind of like that, which is why it's published as Arkham Noir Case One. Um, so, but, do so, you, mm-hmm. do you think it has limited replayability then, or, or I mean, you said you really enjoyed exploring it, so maybe it doesn't matter. But how how many plays do you think you get out of it? Well, here's the thing: if I were to play it again, it's almost like a comfort food thing. Like, mm-hmm. okay, I know how to win, and and here's the weird thing: normally in a solitaire game, this is a kiss of death, but I can pretty much win every time I play Arkham Noir now. Uh, mm-hmm. But just as kind of a comfort food, yeah, I just want to flip up cards. I just want to look for Brown Jenkin, and you know, the, the, there's a there's a an, an Eldritch dagger you have to find, and the, the the different characters have very different effects on you and on the game. So like, I'm I'm almost going insane. I have to find the Miskatonic Asylum card, or I have to find Doctor Upton who can cure me of of insanity. Um, so just as a comfort food narrative, I think it's got plenty of replayability. As a challenge, as a solitaire challenge, I, I think I've exhausted it. Uh, but that then kind of paves the way for, hey, if I just want to flip up cards and look for Brown Jenkin. Uh, <laughs> right, <I can>. totally. <laughs> so here's another reason I wanted to mention it. I live in Southern California, and recently we've had uh, super high winds, uh, and it's caused power outages around the state because power lines get blown down. Furthermore, some of the power companies who uh, kind of were held liable for some wildfires. They're, as a cautionary measure, shutting down power. So we had a super windy night the other night. So I wasn't super surprised when the power goes out. And I can't watch anything on TV. I can't, you know, my laptop is almost dead. So that was unfortunate timing. Uh, So I couldn't watch a movie. I certainly couldn't watch Netflix because the router was down. So what a perfect time to go sit in the dining room, light up a couple of candles, and break out Arkham Noir. And it just felt so perfect to be sitting by candlelight looking for Brown Jenkin. And, you know, this is around Halloween, so October has this distinct feel. But it was this perfect confluence of timing and an event and a specific game. And I got in two rounds of Arkham Noir before, oh, man, the power came back up because it was a super localized thing. The power company sent a truck out. The power was back up within, like, two hours. Um... But man, it just felt so perfect sitting there in the dark house by candlelight playing Arkham Noir. Uh, 
so have you guys can you think of any times like that where one particular game just felt so perfect for one particular circumstance hmm well, that that that's a tough one, Tom. I mean, I, I'm going to cheat a little bit and say that what, one one of my favorite things to do is when I'm sort of combining my interests across film, books, and games. Mm. Like, if I can find something that allows me to explore an idea or a theme in each of those. And one of the times I can remember that happening was when um, I was playing Tammany Hall, which is a really cool board game about... Um, you know, old school New York City, boss tweed era politics. It's a mm-hmm. pretty intense area control game. And at the time, I was really interested in reading a really good book about that era and, and really thinking about it all the time. And then I was watching movies about it. And I really like moments like that where I feel like my gaming is is, is even it's it's being informed by what i'm what i'm reading about and what i'm learning right, um, i think right. i think a lot of people have that experience with like historical war games um where they'll read an entire book about you know the battle in north africa and then they'll play a game about it and just feel like the, those two things are really helping them enjoy the experience more similar to that hassan i, I recently watched a movie called first man which is the uh, biopic about neil armstrong with ryan gosling and in it there's a point where they are talking about the challenge of getting because they realize in order to land on the moon rather than just send a rocket ship and land on the moon and then send it back to earth that they should send something to orbit the moon and then drop a smaller component of that on the moon so that for that to take off it takes less fuel rather than drop the whole assembly on the moon and then have to escape its gravity um so there's a point where they're basically having to figure out how to get ships to dock with each other in space which is something that hadn't been done before. And I was so reminded of a couple of things with <laughs> right. uh, Leaving Earth, where right, you have to say. research docking, and where I had this aha moment, which I, I didn't really have it, I read it online, but where I realized, oh, send something to orbit and then drop a smaller thing onto the planet rather than sending your whole assembly onto the planet. Uh, so I watching First Man just felt like this great, uh, um, synergy with playing Leaving Earth. Yeah. Right. Uh, Mike, any well, perfect gaming moments for you? I can't think of any that just kind of happened. Um, so I do a lot of uh, role-playing, and we every uh, Halloween we do a kind of special session. Uh, this year we're doing playing this game called Ten Candles, which is like a one-off RPG where you oh, have these... Oh, I've heard, heard of this, Mike. Yeah, I, it sounds really, really interesting. So it's a kind of a free-form, impromptu RPG. There's one person running it, which is going to be me. And you have these ten candles around a, a bowl where you can burn stuff. And then as the game goes on, the candles... Like literally, you're talking about literal candles and literal, literal burning? Literal candles and literal burning. Whoa. So if a char- character dies, you burn their sheet in the uh, in the bowl. <laughs> that's awesome. And then when all the candles are out, the game's over. So, and that's going to happen eventually, so it's kind of got this sense of dread. Uh, but you're trying to do as much good for the world uh, before that. Um, but I, I'm still reading it. I'm really looking forward to it. It's, it's gotten really good reviews um, just as kind of creating a mood. Uh, and then one thing I want to mention from a few years ago for uh, a role-playing session. Do you guys remember that sci-fi show, Ghost Hunters? Those, like, plumbers would go into, like, a house. Oh, yeah. I, I know that sort of thing. I don't know the specific yes. show, though. So yeah. I, I, for one Halloween, I turned that into a role-playing session where they were playing <laughs> ghost hunters and, you know, setting up cameras and running into actual paranormal stuff. But I always try to do something like that around Halloween. It's very fun. That's cool. Ha- Halloween does lend itself to very specific 
like types of games. I mean, just the by by highlighting the horror theme that is in some games. Yeah, this mm-hmm. is perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're playing. Uh, we normally play games on Thursday night, but because Thursday is Halloween, we're instead doing a Wednesday night gaming session. And I was trying to think, should I try to get them to play some like horror themed game? Uh, and one of them is bringing over. Uh, a game called Ghosts Love Candy. Do you guys know this? <laughs> I have not heard of this. <laughs> oh, God. It, it, talk about – I forget what the twee thing was that you guys mentioned before. <laughs> Boy, talk about twee. Ugh. So I, I'm regretting like saying, hey, let's play a halloween theme thing because she was like, yeah, let's play Ghosts Love Candy. It looks like a kitty game. But fortunately, it also looks like something super short, so we can get that out of the way quickly. Yeah, my my group is Jones and to play get Nemesis to the table again because all the one of the guys got all the expansion stuff recently, right? Because right? they just shipped that out. And, I really want that game. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 great. It might be in my top ten. I just we just need to play it more. But I think see that's a Halloween themed game, right? You don't need to play ghosts and candy. You play you know. Alien, Alien is horror, exactly. Alien yeah. is classic like, horror. You, know, you, could, you could even play Space Hulk, right? Fighting uh, right. the equivalent of aliens. So. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like the Xenos or the whatever, the, the Gene Stealers. Like, oh, that's inspired go. by Alien. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so have I told you guys about a game called Life Form? No. Okay. I've heard about it. I've heard that the uh, the rule book is, is, is a bit dense. Do you have it now, Tom? I or? do. So it's a, it was a Kickstarter thing, it also based on Alien. And it, it was out about the same time that the Nemesis Kickstarter was going. And I don't – for some reason, I went with Lifeform instead of Nemesis. Uh, and Nemesis arrived first. A friend of mine brought it over, and that thing happened where he taught it so poorly that he kind of sabotaged the game for everyone. <laughs> So Nemesis came out. I didn't like it. Then I got Lifeform, drafted one of my friends into playing it, and I think Lifeform is kind of terrible. It just doesn't get what the appeal of Alien is. It's just messy and fiddly for no good reason. Um, I think Lifeform is horrible. So I went back and played Nemesis the right way, like knowing how to play it, and I now really like Nemesis a lot, and – have an extra copy of Lifeform, but don't own Nemesis. So, rats. <laughs> I think Nemesis is supposed to be in retail uh, fairly soon. I've been waiting for it. So. Yeah, believe me, I've kept an eye on that, Mike. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So. Uh, all right, so uh, there we go. Space Base. Of, of all the games that were mentioned tonight, uh, Space Base, um, Arkham Noir, and uh, what am I skip? Paper Tales. The best name, Ten Candles. <laughs> That's a cool game Yeah, I like that. It's on the nose. It's evocative. It's memorable. I like it. (laughs) So thanks, everyone, for listening. We're going to be back in two weeks to talk about more board games. I am Tom Chick. I have been here with Mike Pullman and Hassan Lopez. Oh, you know what? Before I go, Hassan, because I want to do this every two weeks, any news, what's going on with your game? Anything, any news that you can tell us? Uh, no, nothing Nothing new. No new okay. news right now. Nope. Even if it's a matter of saying nothing new, I want to check in with you every two weeks to see how it's going. <laughs> okay. Fair so, enough. We'll do that two weeks from now, and we'll talk to everyone then, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.